Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. COVID-19 vaccination has begun to roll out in the United States. Two vaccines are currently approved for emergency use, with other vaccines in the pipeline. With us today to share her knowledge of the vaccines and the trials leading up to the approval of emergency use is Dr. Jean Patterson, who is a professor at Texas Biomedical Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Patterson. To start, what COVID-19 vaccines are currently in the works at Texas Biomedical or more generally? Well, we have done some work with Novavax, and their vaccine is baculovirus express protein particles. Um, that one, I'm not sure where it is in clinical trials, but a lot of the preclinical work on animals was done at Texas Biomed. We also worked heavily with Johnson & Johnson on their Ebola vaccine, which I believe was approved in Europe at least, and that's an adenovirus-based platform. Johnson & Johnson and a subsidiary, Janssen, are also using that adenovirus platform to make a COVID vaccine, although we haven't been involved in that preclinical trial. Mostly we've been involved with developing the animal models to make available to companies. And also one of our investigators, Ricardo Carrion, has been heavily involved with Regeneron's uh, monoclonal antibody cocktail, um, where we did a, the major preclinical trial in monkeys um, he's also been involved with working with Regeneron when they developed the same kind of cocktail for Ebola virus. Great. And so what are mRNA vaccines and how are they different from vaccines we already have? Yeah, so that's a new major platform for development of vaccines. It's been looked at for somewhere between five and 10 years now where people have been looking at the basic science behind directly adding messenger RNA into cells and having them come back and, and translate the protein and express the protein. There was an earlier technology with DNA vaccines that never actually got to approval stage, although some are clearly far along and could be approved. That was a little bit more problematic because we weren't exactly sure how this DNA platform worked, the entire mechanism. But mRNA is very clear. It gets into the cytoplasm and presumably translates the protein through normal ribosomal machinery. It is actually a new paradigm, if you think about it, for uh, developing for vaccines for new and emerging diseases, because as soon as you know the sequence of the virus, which we can do now in hours, if we can isolate the virus or for that matter, other um, pathogens, you know immediately if, we, if it's a virus we've seen before, if it's in a family of viruses that we've seen before, we know pretty much what the major dominant epitope is and what protein that comes from. It's almost uh, always the, the major surface protein. So we can synthesize that RNA again within hours of learning what the virus is, what the sequence of that particular virus is, and then synthesizing the messenger RNA. And there is talk where we could actually have a lot of these stockpiled in various stages of development as these viruses emerge. So I believe that this will be the, the platform that will be used from now on as something as serious and as quickly emerges as, as COVID. In any case, the, the two companies that are furthest along in this obviously are Moderna and Pfizer. The way they were each formulated was slightly differently based on the lipid formulations. 
I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but apparently that's what leads to the need for different temperatures. Pfizer seems to require a very super cool, cold environment. Moderna doesn't need to require as cold, but mRNA viruses cannot be transferred in room temperature, say as a DNA virus, which was one of the advantages of a DNA virus. It's very stable. Again, the way these were uh, synthesized, identified, and, and started in clinical trials is the reason that it went so quickly. The adenoviruses are Johnson & Johnson again, which developed the adeno platform for both Ebola and Zika, and then AstraZeneca, which had been working on a vaccine for MERS, I believe. And so they had already tested their adenovirus vector with MERS, which is a, another form of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Great. And when it comes to clinical trials, typically how long should the trial period be in order to observe any adverse outcomes? That's an excellent question, but a tricky question. I mean, in the past, the the fastest we ever developed a vaccine through the normal clinical trials was mumps, and that took about four years. Clearly, there wasn't the kind of fatality rate with mumps, which would encourage us to try to speed up the process. There were ways that the process was sped up, um, and, and I have to admit, It was clever and it was safe. One of the reasons that it was able to be sped up is that the government or other entities put in all the money necessary right away. Often when a company is developing a vaccine, they go one step at a time. They look, how well does it work in, you know, can we synthesize it well? How well does it work in in rodent animal models? Then how well does it work in in, um, non-human primate models if there's one available? And this is all done because there's, that there's financial risk at each stage. If it fails at one stage, you don't want to have put money into a clinical trial if you know, it's already it's failed at an early stage. But by prepaying for everything in advance on the assumption it was all going to work, companies could do things in parallel, like they did the animal studies in parallel, um, rodents and non-human primates. And they also did the animal studies in parallel with starting um, phase one safety studies. So phase one is the safety trial, which is done with healthy young adults usually. Um, And these are usually uh, volunteers. Phase two is done, again, testing the safety, but with with different demographics, older, younger, some with morbidities. And they look at some efficacy at phase two. And phase three, it's all efficacy. You use a large number of volunteers and you look for any adverse reactions and for true efficacy. Are the people that are getting vaccinated less likely to have disease than the people that are receiving the placebo? Now, there were a lot of reasons why this was easier to look at than previously. One, there was a rolling review of data as the data came out. Instead of most companies like to put all of their data together in a very complete package where it's gone over intensely over and over again at once, at the end of everything. With the government and the FDA allowed was to provide a rolling review of data. So as data was coming out, it was allowed to be evaluated by the FDA. There was also a lot of social media use to find volunteers. In the past, it's not that easy to find volunteers. I mean, you know, you have to advertise, you have to go out and recruit. Because of the social media we have available today, people could be notified that there was a trial in your area and that you could, in fact, apply to be in it. And then, of course, there was also remote monitoring. Because we're in the middle of the pandemic, at the same time we're trying to make the vaccine, you don't want to put those volunteers more at risk for acquiring the disease. In general, you would have patients come, or volunteers that are taking the vaccine come back and forth to be examined. 
they did a lot of remote monitoring of disease, which prevented them from having to come back into clinics and where they could, in fact, be more likely to, in fact, catch the disease. And then ultimately, they did phase two and phase three at the same time, again, with careful monitoring of side effects, adverse reactions. And the result was that we were able to do this quite quickly compared to, to previous attempts at vaccine development. All of the platforms that were being that were being done in this way, adeno, um, mRNA, baculovirus express proteins, had all actually been previously tested for safety. So we knew that when we were looking at other diseases with mRNA previously, although none of them had been approved, they'd already shown that it was safe to give to humans. And also adenovirus had been tested in many, many arenas, and it was known to be relatively safe as was the baculovirus express. So these platforms have been in the works building on the safety data, data. So it wasn't just the data that was available from using it for coronavirus, but it was safety data, the data that had been developed as we've been trying to use it to develop vaccines for other pathogens. And, and many of these companies had already been working with their platform on other coronaviruses like the AstraZeneca had MERS, SARS, and some companies were underway with coronavirus as a common cold. It wasn't just the data that was available on this particular um, pathogen with this particular pathogen. It was an accumulation of safety data, efficacy data that had been acquired through, you know, a good 10 years or more of of looking at these platforms. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in your opinion, was the trial period for the Pfizer and or Moderna vaccines long enough? I think they were. I think that there was so much... Um, historical data on these on these platforms. There, there was so much data being developed, you know, quickly, and the data was being analyzed constantly. So I think it, while it, it feels rushed, it really wasn't. I mean, it was done. You know, as we can see, there was so little adverse reactions, ex- with the exception of maybe these allergic reactions, which were few and far between. I think that it was done appropriately and with the, the amount of care you would need to make a safe vaccine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what is your opinion about the adverse outcomes around the current COVID-19 vaccine and its reaction with serious allergies? Well, it's, it's obviously of a concern. My understanding, and again, I don't know any more than what I read in the, in the newspaper, um, both these two people in the UK already carried EpiPens with them, which meant they were at risk for an anaphylactic shock for some other allergen. Um, maybe a shellfish, uh, maybe it's cats, um, in a variety of things that can cause an anaphylactic shock. Um, but for someone who's prone to anaphylaxis, it's a, it's a different set of morbidity. And it's one that you have to be very careful with. Um, and my understanding is that um, anyone getting the shot now is required to stick around for at least 15 minutes. And anyone with has had a serious allergic reaction is required to stay around for 30 minutes. The reason you carry an EpiPen is it can be administered immediately and is very effective at blocking an anaphylactic reaction. Most people can give it to themselves if they feel the, the reaction coming on. And so I think that th- this was not a, unanticipated. Um, it certainly was expected, and we see it with almost all vaccines. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so do you think the vaccine would reduce the transmission of COVID-19 or even prevent serious illness? When the clinicians were monitoring the, the effects of the vaccine, what they were looking for was disease. And again, they didn't want to do it with people coming into the clinic. They did it by a lot of remote monitoring. 
and the reports. So they're asking you, have you had a fever today? Have you had um, a runny nose? Have you had chills, et cetera? Have you had breathing difficulties? And so the readout for the efficacy of this vaccine was, are people showing symptoms? The readout was not, have you been blocked from getting infected? That takes a lot more laboratory work and would have required a lot more time. When in fact, as in all diseases, we don't care about the virus, we care about the disease. So the vaccine was being monitored and the readout was determined, is the vaccine preventing disease? But it doesn't say, was it sterile immunity? These people have absolutely no viral infection. Sterile immunity is difficult to get even in the best of vaccines. And that's something that has to be looked at very carefully to prove that you've actually completely blocked infection. So now the question is, does it block transmission? Can you still transmit it? Did you get a small amount of virus, but your immune system was able to kick in fast enough that you prevent a disease, but were you still able to spread it? And that we don't know, but that will be determined relatively soon as people start looking at these people to see did people in their households get sick? Now they'll do probably a subset to see if people are actively shedding virus after the vaccine. But that takes a lot of time and actually puts the volunteers more at risk. So the best thing to do is to just find out, do these vaccines prevent what we're concerned about? And what we're concerned most about is people getting very sick. And that's what they looked for. And that's what they determined that the vaccines were, were proving to be effective against. Again, the, the, the speed with which it was done, um, I think, it was done with in mind that the faster we do it, the more likely we're gonna save lives. And while these people were, on, were being vaccinated in the trials, they were saving lives, clearly. The vaccine was saving lives. So th this was an, a monumental task. It's a moonshot. And um, we're just fortunate that there's been so much basic science funded and developed in this country that allow us to step in and, and make this happen. Great. Thank you so much for speaking with me today and answering all of my questions. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And um, I hope that um, I've provided some important information and that people will get ready to take the vaccine.